Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, creeps. It's me, John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper, and you're listening to Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Casualty Chris. And this is Father Malone. And we are the hosts of Chronicles from the Crypt, a twice a month look at the horror anthology series Tales from the Crypt that ran. On HBO, from 19, or excuse me, from 18, oh, Jesus. 1889. From 1989, from 1989 to 1996. Now, on each of our podcasts, we examine two episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and along the way, in between seasons, we tend to take an examination of ephemera that are tangentially related to Tales from the Crypt, whether it be movies that came before or after, and here we go. Season 5, yo. Yep, so we're going to be talking about the third and fourth episode of Season 5, Forever Ambergris and Food for Thought. Yes, I think the Fish Islands will do fine. Greetings, fashion fiends. So glad you could join me. Bet you didn't know your pal the Crypt Keeper dabbled in photography. I just love winding a few rolls of Codagrone into my camera, turning on the old fright meter, and snapping off a few head shots. <laughs> Tonight's putrid picture is sure to increase your shudder speed. It's about a photographer who's losing his touch and would do almost anything to get it back. Did I say almost? I call this sickening snapshot Forever Ambergris. So Forever Ambergris aired October 2nd, 1993. So they aired three episodes the first night the show came back for the fifth season. It is directed by Gary Flader, written by Scott Rosenberg. It stars Roger Daltrey. Roger Daltrey, you may ask. Yes, Roger Daltrey, the lead singer for The Who. Uh, Steve Buscemi, I I believe Titus Welliver is in there as well. He absolutely is. Uh, and uh, so is, uh, God, what's the, the uh, Marshall Bell. Marshall Bell's grand there, Lizette Anthony, who <clears throat> showed a lot of promise, and then uh, there was never sort of a, a follow-up to it, but Lizette Anthony is fantastic. It wasn't just the promise she was showing, big fella. Well, 
in this particular episode. Yes, she 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 gets down to it. But uh, Lizette Anthony from Bram Stoker's Dracula and the sequel to Trilogy of Terror, I think she was underused. Let's say I, th- I think she's a better actress than what we're getting here. Well, she's I mean she's not given much to do anyways. That's true. But all right, l- let me go ahead. This. <laughs> But <laughs> by all means, interject, right. Father Malone. I, I'm go, I, I'm gonna go ahead. This it, okay forever. Ambergris. The comic book that it's adapted from is Tales from the Crypt number forty four. This is a a monumental moment in Tales from the Crypt history, and then it's actually based on a Tales from the Crypt comic book. I think we can count how many of them on like two hands at this point. At this point, yeah, and it's kind of shocking to me that they weren't sort of leaning more heavily into Tales from the Crypt. But this is Tales from the Crypt. Issue number 44, the comic originally was written and drawn by Mr. Jack Davis. The I'm going to go ahead and say he was the best influence on Tales from the Crypt. He's a fucking fantastic artist. He was a really good writer. The comic book itself differentiates not wildly from what we ended up with here on screen, but enough that I kind of applaud and deride uh, the script that we got. The, the filmed version that we got is a couple of wartime photographers. One played by Roger Daltrey, who is the uh, the veteran who's been working at it forever, and Steve Buscemi, who is the kind of neophyte who looks up to him. In the case of this episode, you know, Steve Buscemi invites him home to meet his wife, who he's completely in love with. Roger Daltrey comes home with him, falls in love with her, but she kind of rebuffs him. Then those two characters go away to a war-torn climb. Roger Altry knows that there's a particular village where there's a virulent strain of a virus. This is uh, very uh, topical. And sends him away. Uh, uh, Steve Buscemi gets the virus, dies, and Roger Daltrey returns to claim this girl that he's been in love with, although she rebuffed him sort of initially. In the comic book, very different. This is the 1950s, the most sort of far-flung foreign place a character could be was a longshoreman. Roger Daltrey's character is the skipper of a ship that goes overseas to collect items he his his first mate is a guy who has uh, fallen in love with and married this woman who was sort of above his stature necessarily but in the comic the woman when the lead character meets her is the typical tales from the crypt character where she's completely in love with him as well she's kind of a, a harridan uh, if you will and she's just waiting for her husband to die so she can be back with this interloper and in the case of the comic book he finds a an island in the middle of the the pacific that still has bubonic plague sends the uh the husband character the steve buscemi character to go to that island where he contracts bubonic plague and ends up dying but then on the way back they're followed by a whale who keeps eating every thing that they're throwing off of the ship all of the sort of refuse including unfortunately the corpse of the steve buscemi character and then disgorges everything which is part and parcel to the title of the episode forever ambergris ambergris of course being when a whale vomits it vomits up this thing called ambergris which most perfumes around the world are made out of. They collect the ambergris from the whale, they end up making it into a perfume, and they spray it on the wife who has been waiting for the Roger Dalton car to come back, and uh, when it does, she gets the bubonic plague herself and ends up disintegrating in front of him. Forever Ambergris as a title works very well in the comic book. It doesn't work at all here. There is no uh, whiff 
if you will, of Ambergris in this story at all. Now, having said all of that, I do think the teleplay by Scott Rosenberg is an improvement over the original in that we get an interesting story as far as like wartime photographers, which is a subject that doesn't come up enough, but we don't get anything as far as where the Ambergris goes. Where the script works better than the comic is Lizette Anthony's character, Steve Buscemi's wife in the episode, doesn't have any interest in Roger Daltrey at all. She's very much devoted to her husband and then sort of uses the disease-ridden potpourri or, you know, incense that Steve Buscemi sends to, tends to send back to her from wherever climb he ends up going to to use it to as a form of revenge, even though it kills her as well, to exact revenge for Steve Buscemi on the guy. Well, this is one of those episodes that really sticks with me. And it sticks with me because I think the practical effects are so good. They're really good in this episode. And they're really gross. And you feel bad for Steve Buscemi's character because he's knowingly thrown into the deep end by Roger Daltrey. Truly. I mean, at one point, his eyeball pops out of his head. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, super it's pretty gross. fucking gnarly. It's gnarly. Yeah. This may be the grossest episode of the show. Do you think? I think so. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Up until this point, at least. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Till Death, an episode is a voodoo episode from a couple years ago where we had a, uh, a sort of like walking corpse uh, female character. Like that was pretty spot on, pretty gnarly as well. But as far as a character sort of disintegrating on screen, it's pretty fantastic. When Steve Buscemi sort of comes back from the village and is slowly disintegrating in front of Roger Daltrey, it is awful. Part of that is the makeup, and part of that is the performance of Steve Buscemi, who really sells the fact that he is coming apart while standing. Literally at the seams. Yeah, he's, it's, it's really bad. Kudos to the makeup uh, team. In this particular episode, uh, they did a creditable job. Yeah, no, the makeup's good. I mean, the story itself is pretty, uh, not one note, but it's not anything particularly creative. You know, it's a pretty kind of straightforward revenge story in a way. Yeah, but at least it's not the same typical love triangle episode where the wife is cheating with this guy. Like, it was absolutely refreshing that he comes on to her, Steve, Roger Dalton's character comes on to Lissette Anthony, and she's just like, no, like, you, I, I get it, you're a handsome guy, you're wildly successful, I know all of that, but my husband is none of the things that you are, and I love him, like, to the nth degree. Like, that was, to me, a, a better twist than most of the twists that they end up foisting on us in this series. And, I and agree. kudos to Scott Rosenberg on this part. Now, Scott Rosenberg, uh, if he's known for anything, he wrote Gone in 60 Seconds, the remake, Con Air, the original draft of that. And he wrote a, in my opinion, wildly underrated film called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. I thought Scott Rosenberg was a really interesting writer in the uh, the sort of early to mid-90s. Uh, you can feel that in this episode. He's got some good ideas going on here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I like this episode a lot, even as, even for how gross it is. Like, it, it verges on, like, unnecessarily disgusting. Yeah, but you know what? If you're going to do and it, cr- fucking and cr- go for and it. And cruel, too. Oh, yeah. It's unnecessarily disgusting and unnecessarily cruel as well. I mean, this is one of the episodes where you're like, I really am glad that the bad guy, the villain, gets what he has coming to him. Yeah, and... Uh, again, as a uh, a motivation of the plot, the fact that the wife knows fully well 
what she's getting into by opening this package that Steve Buscemi has sent to her. And she's not only going to end up dying because of it, she's going to use it as a form of revenge for him against this lead character. Like, I thought that was pretty innovative. I liked it a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a good episode. I, I like it a lot as well, for sure. It benefits from good performances and great makeup, for sure. But I think it's just an all-around good episode. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know, man. Like, so far, one, two, three episodes into season five, like, uh, hitting on all cylinders, like, really uh, really delivering what I expect from Tales from the Crypt. Like, this, is, it, this isn't a great episode. This isn't fucking Man Who Was Death, but pretty solid overall. Yeah, I would agree. It's a solid episode, and I, it's definitely worth a watch. So Watch for me as well. Before we talk about Food for Thought, we're going to play an interview that I did with Ernie Hudson a couple years back, talking about his participation in the episode Food for Thought, and when we get back, we'll talk about the episode. On Tales from the Crypt, uh, in Season 5, you play the great Zambini in an episode called Food for Thought. Um, had you watched the show before you were involved with it? Not really. I mean, I, I mean I'm i sure I may have seen an episode or two. I'm not really a, a big television watcher. Um, so I got the call from my agent. Um, uh, Joan Chin was playing my wife, I think. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I was, I, I've seen something she had done. So I, that was, uh, reason enough to do it for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I, you know, yeah, I knew about the show and, um, but, but I, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, uh, a watcher. And I knew that a lot of people were doing it and I knew they were sort of committed to, uh, a certain level of, um, excellence, you know, that, uh, they had some great, uh, filmmakers doing it. And so, I was excited about doing it. Yeah, because at the, at the point when you were on the show, it was beyond, I guess, established uh, at that yeah, point. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It had been around for a while, and uh, yeah. So you know, it. Uh, yeah, and it was an interesting character. I mean, part of what I sort of I love to do, which is acting, uh, it's been very hard. I mean, it's been a, a career where I don't always get a, a chance to do that. You know, I mean, I because I, a lot of times I can be in a movie, um, play a character in a movie, and uh, and it's just a moment. You know, it's not really an intricate part of the story. You know, somebody else's story, and so you try to bring everything you can to it, but you're only limited because you can only bring. It doesn't require that much. It doesn't require a lot from you. So sometimes it's just a matter of uh, you know showing up and not you know, bring your whole arsenal, you know, you want to simplify it as best you can because it gets in the way of all the other stuff that's going on. And that becomes very frustrating. So every once in a while, a role will come along like, um, you know, Tales from the Crypt, where I get to be the crazy guy who does all the stuff and, and I get to play with other actors and, and I am an intricate, an integral part of the story. Right. That is, that is, that I live for that. And, and, um, yeah, so it, but it, it doesn't, there's been a lot of stuff where, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, um, I'm not involved enough to really save the day. So. Right. 
but uh, but uh, yeah, but I, I loved uh, I loved that script. I loved the character. It was very bizarre. It's very different from um, anything any anything I had ever seen you in. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of fun because for me the chance to sort of go into a character to go into kind of just the psychology of what is going on. I mean, you take a character like the Great Zambini or the Hand of Rocks the Cradle or or even the Congo character. I mean, it's you get a chance to sort of explore this as opposed to say. They want me to be the guy who's a librarian. He has three scenes, and and he just sort of he's there. He's a guy, so you know uh, you you still have to do the homework for it. But it's different when a guy like the great Zambini is unraveling because his wife is leaving him, and he's trying to control her, and he's you know he, uh, the the there was so much stuff going on. That's that's the fun stuff. It's frustrating because it's hard to sleep at night. Because you come up with all these ideas and you want to sort of, uh, and then you got to fight with the director who doesn't see all it. But that's that's you, you live for that because it's it 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 demands more of you, right? Um, and it's it sort of you, you get to embody it as opposed to, you know, you show up, you say the words, and you don't, you know, it's you know, it's just different. It's just you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So. Um, you know, the character in the hand of Rossi. I did a movie for TV One called uh, To Hell and Back, uh, and I was playing the character Job as a sort of modern-day telling of uh, the Job story. But that character was so amazing because of all the stuff that was going on. You, for an actor, you, you sort of live and breathe that stuff. I mean, it's great when you play with other actors and how does this impact and what goes on. I mean, all the fun stuff that when I first became an actor, getting on stage and you know, how does this guy walk and how does, what does he sound like? The character in Great Zambini, you know, he had a different sound than, you know, and how, you know, it's, it's, it's full. And it was one of the full characters yeah. that I had fun with. Uh, was there anything particularly memorable about kind of uh, filming that episode? Well, you know, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was great working with her. The director and I, we didn't agree on a lot. So trying to find my space, trying to honor his space. And that's it. We didn't agree a lot. We, uh, we just had our differences in terms of, you know, my relationship with, you know, the, the, the wife, uh, the Joan Chin character, her leaving with, you know, how, you know, about relationships, a lot of things. It was, it was, it was difficult, but I think, you know, sometimes it's part of the creative process because, you don't necessarily get what you want, and they don't necessarily get what they want, but hopefully you come out with something in between that, that works. Right. And you're in full makeup in the entire episode. Uh, yeah, it was written. It was it was odd, to be, I, I thought, in, uh, and I haven't seen it in a long time. So, But um, I think it was written, the character description in the script that I got was <clears throat> 350-pound uh, white actor um, who's in this clown makeup and he loved the eating. So I think it opened with me cooking and he's eating and it's, you know, he's gluttonous. And yeah. So when they cast me in the part, uh, I'm not 350 pounds. So in the makeup, the clown makeup almost came out kind of primal and a little bit African, a little bit. It was just, it wasn't a typical circus cloud makeup i didn't think anyway and um yeah it was it was different and it was 
but it was great. I mean, I, I loved it for that for that reason. It was a uh, little sort of, and maybe that's what the Tales of the Crypt, you know, should be about. And maybe that was, you know, a great part of the experience is to be able to explore all that. I can't remember. Somebody else was in it. Um, um, uh, there was another actor. Uh, 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 oh, I can't remember. Oh, anyway, the other cast. But um, some actor came up to me recently and told me that he was he, he did a part in at that episode. But it, but it was a fun. It was a, a great experience. It was great to be able to to work on that show and. Uh, you know, um, I don't know whoever saw it. I, I don't think I've ever got some jobs I've done where people say, oh, I saw that and we called you in. So I jobs called, created jobs. I don't think anybody's ever given me a job because of Tales of the Crypt. But I, but I, I, I love the, uh, um, and sometimes, you know, the, your best work gets, I don't say lost, but it doesn't necessarily get seen. So, um, yeah, it may have been a time at, of the show when it wasn't quite as, you know, whatever, as beginning. Maybe it was just bizarre, but uh, but it was fun. I'm glad I got the experience, to, the chance to do it. And it's and it's a and, it, and it's a good episode. It uh, it's it still kind of holds up. And there are episodes of the show that that don't hold up anymore. But oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that the timeless nature of the kind of carnival theme is one that that. Uh, kind of translates well yeah yeah that uh yeah i'd love it. i haven't seen it i think i might have seen it um when it uh came out the first time but i haven't seen it in years so um but um yeah it was it was every once in a while you know because you know you do the conventions um and of course people come up and they'll ask about ghostbusters or the crow you know the obvious ones but um somebody will come up and um you know mention um you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt, or and and or some obscure movie that I think, oh, nobody ever saw that. And somebody says, oh yeah, no. So you never know who's watching. You do this, you do this stuff. It's all out there, you know, floating around. And uh, but that was one that I, I you know, I have, I have good memories. I just remember it was a lot of work. That's what I remember about that that show. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I think when as an actor, you you find a character. Once you get in sync with the character. Then it's just fun because you're 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 seated in it, and in Tales of the Crypt, I could never get in sync with it because the director had a different view, and so it was always hard to really just settle in it and have fun. Um, but but it was work, and you know, so yeah. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, I can imagine kind of clashing with the director, leading to kind of a, a different feel for everything. On set. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, sometimes you want to, you know, when you, like when with the Hand and Ross and Cradle, when you finally link, and then you kind of know, and then you kind of live the character. You sort of, you kind of know. It's not even right or wrong. It's, it's it's what's right for the character, you know, and you kind of, you're there. You sort of, you know his, you just, it's, I don't know, it's like you, you, you're, but when somebody's always questioning, or then it, 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 it makes it, turbulent because um you're trying to accommodate you're trying to do that you you, you know it, it just and that was a hard job Look terrible. You've got to pay closer attention to your oral hygiene. 
or you'll end up looking like me. I want you to brush after every meal, floss and gargoyle twice a day. Hmm. Yes, looks like I'll have to drill. This won't hurt me a bit. <laughs> In the meantime, to take your mind off the pain, I've got a little dose of frightress oxide for you. It's about a sideshow mind reader who's lost his head over a pretty girl. I call it Food for Thought. So Food for Thought aired October 6, 1993. It stars Ernie Hudson, Joan Chen, and John Laughlin. It is directed by Rodman Flender and written by Larry Wilson. And it is about a psychic clown who abuses his assistant. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? It's... Woo. It's not wow. good. Wow. It's okay. not good. Nah, it's garbage. Uh this episode... it, like the the twist is the twist is so such a non sequitur. It's like it almost feels like they're just laughing at like at themselves. Like they know that this episode's a joke. It's real bad, man. Uh this is based on a Tales from the Crypt uh a comic book, which is, you know, rare for Tales from the Crypt a series. Uh, this was out of Tales from the Crypt number forty. Again, written and direct, drawn by Mr. Jack Davis. I like the comic a whole lot more than what we got on screen, got to admit. The plot is absolutely similar in that we have the whole thing takes place in a, uh, not a carnival, but a circus, traveling circus, where in the comic book, it's the wife of the circus's resident psychic, and she's fallen in love with the lion tamer. The husband has figured out that his wife is cheating on him, and then decides to feed the lion tamer to the lions. At the same time, there's a running subplot where each of the places that they go to, there have been reports of local cemeteries being raided. The corpses have been dug up. The psychic guy gets his revenge by feeding the the lion tamer his uh, cuckold, if you will, to the to the lions. They end up burying him. At which point. Uh, the wife, out of revenge, uh, like knocks him out, but knows he's still alive, decides to have the rest of the circus bury him alive, even though he's seemingly unconscious or dead to them. And then in the final frames, uh, the husband realizes that even though he's been buried and dead, the reports of the grave robbing are not because of any reason other than there's a ghoul in their midst who a ghoul traditionally we've seen it in here in uh, tales from the crypt and our previous episode with rita wilson ghouls dig up the corpses of the recently dead in order to feast upon them and so he ends up getting eaten while he's still alive much more interesting than what we got here in the episode which you know the lead character is not even the psychic he's just a guy who can project really well to the psychic played by joan chen and in this case they end up having the gorilla come and act exact revenge i i don't know this was this was lackluster at best this makes dig that cat he's real gone which was set in the similar milieu of the uh the the sort of circus setting like seem like one hundred thousand percent better than what we got here uh much love to everyone involved by the way uh, ernie hudson is really good if you've ever wanted to see ernie hudson getting a blowjob while eating chocolates, this is the episode for you. If you want to see Ernie Hudson having his time wasted, it's a real bummer. Because Ernie Hudson's a, a cool guy. And he's 
still my favorite Ghostbuster, and he's criminally wasted in this episode. His like his performance is fun, but the episode is just so goofy. It's it, this is just a weird episode because like the twist also is just fucking bizarre. The twist is insane. That gorilla's right? gonna get you. I don't have much to uh, elaborate on as far as where this episode goes. I mean, ultimately, I think this episode is just... A, it's a weird attempt to, like, have something interesting to show on screen of, like, a gorilla eating a human head. And they worked backwards from that. And it doesn't work like that. And this episode doesn't work at all. I want to taste your mind. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Great. Sure. Awesome. Who cares? Let's see a gorilla <laughs> eating a and brain. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, geez, like, you know, look, we're going to have... It, for all, for season. as good as the last three episodes were, this one is a real stinker. Yeah, I want to I wanna, I wanna segregate all of the episodes from season four and throw this one into it. Because the promise of the first three episodes so far has been really high. And we end up getting kind of a rote Tales from the Crypt episode. And this shockingly this is well no it's not shocking because the original tales from the crypt comic that i that i described really traffics in what tales from the crypt was best at which is throwing in a supernatural element like the idea that we have this guy who's still alive and buried and now he's dug up by a ghoul and slowly eaten while he's living and can't do anything about it is really potent and could have been shocking and horrible and instead, what we get is just the sort of typical guy controlling a girl and gets his comeuppance. But does he? I mean, it, it, it's not like he's alive while the fucking gorilla is taking him apart. Like, he's dead at that point. The idea of being slowly eaten while you're still alive is really horrific and could have swayed my opinion of this in a different direction you know this is rodman flender the genius behind leprechaun 2 directing <laughs> it's it's shot okay i guess i mean ernie hudson's probably the best thing in it you i mean mind? he totally is and it's also a, a shame that joan chen is in this episode yeah joan chen like josie packard man forever and always turned into a doorknob she turned into a doorknob what is that about isn't that what happened to her in Twin Peaks? Of course it is. Yeah. Super weird. Super spooky. Super weird. Yeah. Joan Chen is a, a, a good actor. Like, most of the actors here are really good. This one hewed back to season four in the, uh, the, the, the good enough level. Like, we've got enough weirdness here where uh, the shortcomings we feel aren't going to be as evident. But they really are. Particularly in comparison to uh, what we've gotten in previous weeks if you got three episodes at the outset the first three that we talked about and then this is delivered the sort of week after this would make me not want to continue to watch yeah well and the thing is is for the how good the last three episodes were this one is such a dud yeah i mean such a dud it's got a couple of charms in it you know but mainly performances but the script isn't doing anybody any favors no, it's not. And again, it feels like a waste of Ernie Hudson's time, a waste of Joan Chen's time, a waste of everybody's time. And that's the biggest disappointment is because Ernie Hudson and Joan Chen aren't on the show again. And pretty much no one who is on the show is ever on it again. Unless you want to talk about like Miguel Ferrer in the last episode that we talked about or William Sadler 
or the guy Roy Brockman who plays a bartender a couple times. Uh, I will say that uh, the uh, the the little person involved in this episode uh, he comes back in a big way for uh, the which I'm sure we're going to be discussing next as a bonus episode as far as Bordello of Blood goes. He's a major character in that. That's a good actor, but giving nothing to do here other than being an ogling little uh, creep. Well, kind of par for the course of the episode, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not good. Don't. I, I, this is a skip. This is a, not even a soft skip. This is a hard skip for me. Watch episodes one, two, and three, and then do not watch this one, and uh, you're going to be satisfied. So, it's a skip for me as well. With that in mind, on the next episode of Chronicles from the Crypt, we're going to be talking about episodes five and six of season five, People Who Live in Brass Hearses, and two for the show. I don't remember liking either of them. I don't remember either of those. One has Bill Paxton. Oh, well, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm already enjoying it. He's a hot-tempered convict with a butter addiction. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So until then, where can people find you, Father Malone? Go check me out on my YouTube channel, Ot5 Films. Uh, check out my show, You've Never Seen, about movies that have fallen by the wayside or not gotten enough love that they deserve. You can hear me also over on the Dreams for Sale Twilight Zone 85 podcast, where we talk about the Twilight Zone reboot from 85, which was a fucking amazing and not anything like the early 2000s or the most recent reboot of the show on occasion you can hear me over on the culture cast your podcast chris uh where i uh i guest every once in a while and sometimes program and as for myself you can find me on the one season show the life and times of barney miller and that's it and here obviously so yeah those are good places to look for me uh chroniclesftc.com chroniclesftc on twitter and also we're on Instagram, so check us out in those places. Big thanks, as always, to John Kassir for the intro music for the podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 